Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're joined by Fabio. Fabio is a serial entrepreneur who now runs a firm which is a trading firm specializing in crypto assets. And we're going to talk about crypto, the digital assets, how it all works, and uh, have a bit of a follow-up on our live event which we had a few weeks ago, uh, which we called the Blockchain Crypto Digital Assets Reality Check. So shout out to Emily Raffo who connected us. And... Uh, so, Fabio, first of all, I have to ask, how are you today? How are you coping with uh, what we now call a COVID fatigue, I guess? Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And yes, as you say, like I think we're still getting kind of used to the, the new normal. Um, but uh, yes, we can't complain uh, too much here in Switzerland, I believe. I think there's... Uh, other countries that have like a much worse kind of situation so yeah all right depending on the day but fair enough so uh as i as i mentioned you're a serial entrepreneur in the blockchain space so what has attracted to it what's the story what uh you know what drove you to do this and uh, as i said it's not your first or only venture right yeah, so before starting Base58, uh, I was in, in California in Silicon Valley and ran a company called Coinalytics that later became Scry, which was an analytics company doing a transaction analysis on, on Bitcoin transactions primarily. And yeah, we sold the company at the end of 2016, uh, which was when I came back to Switzerland and kind of yeah, transitioned more into the, the financial side of, of crypto assets. Uh, what drove me into this space, it's really... Uh, for me, it's one of the most uh, interesting and exciting industries that, that are out there. And it, it was just, a, in my view, a very big opportunity to be an early part of something that could be as transformative as, as the internet to, uh, to the world. So when I yeah, came across Bitcoin in 2013, I kind of went down the infamous rabbit hole and learned and read everything I could find about the topic, which back then was, was still possible. And yeah, my goal was to then contribute to um, spread essentially the world and, and establish Bitcoin and crypto assets as, as a new asset class uh, in the world. And yeah, and from, from the other side, it's also just very mentally stimulating, I would say so, because it combines so many uh, areas of expertise like computer science, economics, politics, finance, technology. Um, it's a kind of all mixed together. And so that's what makes it so fascinating. All right. So more specifically, what is your latest venture of Base58 about? Uh, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Right. So Base58, we're in a technology-driven investment firm uh, specialized in crypto assets. And yeah, I mean, our goal is really to drive essentially the adoption of, of crypto assets and decentralized systems because, uh, yeah, we, we think they will have a very positive impact on, on the global 
uh, economy and, and, and society. And so really what the problem we're trying to solve is to, to provide a, an on-ramp for traditional uh, investors to this asset class. All right. So are you a trading firm or an asset management firm? First thing first. Uh, so we're um, an investment management firm. So we run uh, funds. Uh, we have uh, on one side a, a long only fund, which is um, yeah, tracking a Bitcoin tracker, essentially. Uh, that's based uh, out of Malta. And then we have an actively managed fund where we do or run market neutral strategies, so market making arbitrage, but all kind of in the crypto space. All right. So who are your target clients? Are they institutional clients or retail or both? Or how does that work? Uh, so it's primarily institutional and that ranges essentially from what we would uh, categorize as institutional, which would be high net worth individuals and family offices, uh, crypto fund of funds, which are, I would say, the more progressive side of institutional investors. Uh, and then, yes, we also work um, with, let's say, more traditional institutional investors, uh, asset and wealth managers, private banks, although there, I would say, it's still more on like an educational basis uh, for the most part. So I would say they're still a little bit earlier in, in the cycle. Right. So I come back to what you said before. What is the problem that you're trying to solve, you know, providing on-ramp to traditional investors? So that's institutional. So w what is the solution really or what is the problem? Let's be completely honest. I think the, the, the story is that if you're an institutional investor that has a risk appetite to invest in crypto assets, you cannot use your bank that you used to, right? because they are a little bit more conservative than you are. So is that the competitive advantage that you are the first mover providing that versus, let's say, traditional banks who are worried about all kinds of, you know, uh, issues that uh, they can see? Yeah, so I think like there's two, two sides to this story, right? On one side, it's exactly what you're saying. So it's really like, how do you get access to, the, to this asset class, right? And so there's very few established products in the space today. Most uh, investors, if they are, let's say, courageous enough to kind of get exposure to the space, they don't necessarily want to go through, how do I set up a wallet? How do I buy and sell crypto assets in the first place? So they don't necessarily want to kind of jump through all these hoops to uh, start getting exposure. Um, I'm not saying that that's not maybe the long-term goal for some of them. Um, but it's definitely not uh, step one. So we uh, offer them like a very uh, easy uh, way to, to get exposure. And so that's on, on the passive side. And then on the active side, we essentially uh, develop uh, our trading systems in-house. So that means uh, from the connection to the exchanges, to the order and execution management, uh, really to kind of exploit uh, inefficiencies in the market uh, and, and generate uh, returns that way. So I think these are kind of the two distinct yeah, value propositions that we offer. All right. So if I'm an institutional investor, want to buy into your fund, whichever passive or active, what's the minimum size of the ticket? Uh, so the minimum size is uh, $125,000. So it's really targeted towards uh, professional and institutional investors. Okay, understood. And then you said active. Obviously, if you studied finance or for people who have you know they they uh, in the good old days you talked about fundamental analysis of the stocks or the assets and the technical one right and uh, here my this is kind of uh, a preview to the next question is which what is really a cryptocurrency to your crypto is it a currency or is it an asset or both a lot of people who are completely new to this and believe that me there still are 
they say, well, you know, what is it really? Can I buy anything, you know, groceries in Migro, etc.? And uh, and frankly, they can actually. Um, and the same thing on, you know, the Swiss equivalent of Amazon called Galaxus. Uh, you can also buy electronics online, right? But that's um, I hear it's not the main. It's not the main use case uh, anymore, or it is uh, that has become clear. So, what is it to you? Is it an asset, or is it a means of payment, or both, or, or how should we see it? Because obviously, over the last few years, we've seen prices of uh, Bitcoin and other other currencies going up and down a lot. Right. So, yeah, I think like a, uh, I want to kind of preface this that I mean the narrative is kind of keeps changing, right? Like. When I got involved in, it was about <laughs> payments and it was about kind of digital uh, currency, as you say. Uh, I think over the last couple of uh, months and years, we have definitely seen the digital gold narrative kind of prevail more and more, especially for Bitcoin. And then the other side to the story is that there's no, they're not all the same, right? Uh, I think like cryptocurrency has kind of yeah gained many or crypto assets have gained like a variety of, of shapes and forms. Uh, for us uh, at Base58, at least, there's a few characteristics that make it a crypto asset, a crypto asset if you want to. So it's about the decentralized nature of, of the protocol, so how it's operated, uh, the openness, right. so who can buy, sell, transact in, in that system. The censorship resistance, I think it's a very important one. So meaning, yeah, if there's no way for, for somebody to, let's say, suppress uh, a transaction. And finally, I think the, the mo- one of the most innovative things here is just uh, the digital scarcity aspect of it, right? So in Bitcoin, it, it would be very hard, if not actually impossible, to uh, change the monetary supply at this point, right? Because uh, everybody who's kind of uh, buying into Bitcoin is kind of buying into this belief system. And so it would require an enormous amount of A, computing power, if you would want to kind of overrule the system, or an incredible effort of kind of getting everybody in the system to agree uh, that kind of that um, scarcity should, should should change, right? Which I think it's it's very unlikely at this point. All right. Well, so following up on that, as I said, um, how do you manage the uh, you know in an active way, right? The the asset like this because there is no fundamental driver to it. I would say because you can you cannot say well now uh, um, Amazon in the US and everywhere and around the world is accepting not Bitcoin but uh, Ether and therefore Ether price is going to go up. That's not how it works, right? So how do you manage that? Right. Uh, so, I mean, the active strategies we run are actually market neutral. So we don't take a direction mm-hmm. in the market. So for us, it doesn't really matter whether the market is going up or down. Obviously, yes, in, in a, let's say, more bullish environment, the volumes are going to be higher, volatility is going to be higher, so there's going to be more opportunities. But in general, yeah, if let's say if we see a discrepancy where Bitcoin is high on one exchange and low on the other, we can sell on one, buy on the other, and, and vice versa. Um, and so that's kind of the way we uh, look for opportunities and then exploit them without necessarily taking a directional position uh, on on the individual asset. Obviously, this year also the halving of Bitcoin happened, and there was a uh, there were big celebrations uh, in the virtual world uh, around it. 
So can you explain to people who don't know what the halving of Bitcoin means? What does that mean and why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, maybe let's start at the beginning. So in Bitcoin, every 10 minutes, uh, new Bitcoins are introduced to the system by a process called mining. And so for confirming transactions and essentially securing the network with uh, computing power, these miners get rewarded with Bitcoins. And part of it is from transaction fees and the other part is actually newly generated Bitcoins. Uh, So now coming back to the halving, uh, every four years, the reward that these miners get is cut in half. Uh, So for example, in this cycle, we went from uh, 12 and a half Bitcoin every 10 minutes to 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And so every four years, this uh, amount gets cut in half. And this is how uh, Bitcoin is scheduled to never surpass uh, the total quantity of 21 million Bitcoin, which, yeah, as I mentioned before, is one of Bitcoin's most important properties, right? And yeah, so I, I think like, that's kind of where, because there's never going to be more than 21 million Bitcoin, it's also the first time that we ever have uh, an asset that ha- where we exactly know what the maximum supply is. So even with something like gold, right, uh, uh, we don't really know how much mm-hmm. gold there is. And then the other thing that's exciting here, it's really like how uh, inelastic the supply is. So for example, in gold, if the price of gold increases uh, all of a sudden, uh, some of the gold sources become accessible because it's now profitable to access them. So your supply side increases. Whereas in Bitcoin, it really doesn't matter what the the price does, right? Because of the way it adjusts its supply schedule. Um, every 10 minutes, the, these new Bitcoins are issued um, and doesn't like the supply side doesn't care what the price of Bitcoin is doing. Right, right. So it's about ensuring scarcity and basically avoiding inflation, things like this. Now, maybe following up on the age-old issues and, uh, you know, not to uh, kind of uh, berate the point, but basically from what I understand from incumbents or more traditional investors, they had issues with scalability, KYC, things like this, which is... Uh, hampering the wider adoption of uh, cryptocurrencies or or blockchain. But as you said, the narrative is changing, right, from a currency to to an asset. Uh, That, to me, means the scalability issue is not resolved rather than it's de-emphasized. And, uh, you know, how do we then deal with with the KYC, right? So, that also is then related to perhaps the miners. Uh, I know a lot of people who bought rigs and now they are using it for Microsoft Flight Simulator because they are not mining Bitcoins anymore. So if those uh, rewards are getting uh, cut every four years, etc., as you mentioned, I think the scalability or the speed of processing of transactions is also not going to get sorted or am I wrong? And then second question is, KYC, how do you deal with that? Uh, I I assume you are somehow regulated as a financial institution in Switzerland. So two things, scalability and KYC. Uh, So, I mean, on the scalability, it's really independent of like the the hashing power, right? So the scalability is limited by what's the the so-called block size. So uh, every 10 minutes, a new block is generated. And so depending on how many uh, transactions are essentially waiting to be confirmed, they can be packed into uh, the network. And so there is a, a restriction on, on the maximum size, which is currently a little bit over two megabytes 
if it's like uh, yeah used uh, efficiently and so yeah we can pack as many transactions as, as fit into that and so the reason why there is this limitation is really to uh, preserve the decentralized nature of the network um, because what it would mean uh, if we would to go and increase the block size to say okay let's do a gigabyte every 10 minutes right uh, then all of a sudden your uh, data usage explodes so you need uh, better better hardware so more storage space uh, you need a better uh, internet uh, or more bandwidth so kind of the the hardware requirements uh, would increase dramatically which would limit essentially the the ability for let's say uh, the average user to participate in in the network uh, and that's not only not only important from a mining perspective from also from a verification perspective right so one of the right. the mantras of the space is uh, don't trust verify and so what that means is even I, as an individual, I can download all the transactions that ever happened uh, on the Bitcoin network. And I can go verify that the Bitcoins that I own have never been spent anywhere else before. Uh, so I have like a, a mathematical guarantee that I own my assets at the end of the day. Uh, and so that's a very valuable property that uh, would be compromised if uh, one would have to trust somebody to provide them the data because they can't afford to process uh, all the information themselves. Right. So the block. So the block sizes. Yes, sir. That's by design. Uh, even though maybe still to dig into it, like if you have less miners, are you then uh, more prone to this? You know, infamous fifty-one percent attack or not? Yes, of course. So uh, if you have, uh, let's say, less hashing power securing the network. Obviously, it's easier for an attacker to gather the the 51%, yes. But the speed doesn't change. So there is an algorithm baked into the Bitcoin protocol that every uh, two weeks, more or less, it adjusts the the rate of transactions or or block generations based on the hashing power that's on the network. So what that means, if, if all of a sudden a lot of new miners join the space, then maybe this block size drops slightly below 10 minutes. So what's going to happen is the next cycle, uh, it's going to become harder to actually uh, find the block because it's self-adjusting to this 10-minute schedule, uh, more or less. Okay, understood. So it's dynamic. And then, uh, sorry, you were saying about KYC? Yes. And so in, in terms of KYC, obviously, that depends a lot on, on the jurisdictions where, where people are, are based. Uh, for us in Switzerland, um, we are currently uh, an SRO member uh, with the VQF. So that means, yeah, we just do need to do kind of the, the typical uh, know your customer on, onboarding policy. So identifying the person, identifying where the assets are coming from, Yes, I mean, I think that's kind of how it's going to end up being, right? So at the on and off ramps of, of crypto networks, it's kind of where this KYC and AML is going to happen rather than on the protocols themselves. Right. And uh, well, that is the point, right? I think it has become clear after all these years of education that, uh, you know, using cryptocurrencies is not completely anonymous to begin with. And then if you want to change it to a fiat currency, you need to go through an exchange, right? Or you have a wallet and uh, if somebody puts you in a dark room, then you probably tell them how to get to your wallet anyway, right? I guess yes and no. I mean, obviously, it's a lot easier to uh, essentially 
transport and and transfers of these assets, right? Um, so there is uh, certainly uh, a difference there. I think uh, also from a, a privacy perspective, these technologies are not static, right? So they are evolving and, and there is going to be ways to kind of stay uh, anonymous. But yes, I think we're see- definitely seeing a shift to be uh, more and more KYC, more AML, more, uh, let's call it like institutional friendly type environments, right? Um but I think these are, are going to almost exist in, in parallel rather than completely going one way or the other. I see. So, well, where I'm headed with this is that, um, you know, recently Ray Dalio from Bridgewater said that the governments will eventually kill Bitcoin. Do you think he's right or, or not? Uh, I think he's right in that they will try. But yeah, I believe he's wrong in that they will win. I think at the end of the day, the crypto assets, and I mean, particularly Bitcoin, right? It's about the separation of, of money and state. And, and I think for the first time, we have actually seen an asset that lives uh, completely outside of any regulatory oversight and, and independent of any jurisdiction. Uh, so there's no Bitcoin central bank or CEO that can, uh, can let's say, change the monetary policy. Uh, I think that's something that especially uh, in this time, it's, uh, something that resonates with a lot of people, right? I think like uh, what we've seen this year in terms of, say, call them like monetary policy experimentation. Um, I think it's part of what kind of drove uh, uh, the spotlight to to Bitcoin uh, as well. But I mean, we've seen it before. Uh, China tried to ban Bitcoin. They were not really successful. So I think the only way would require like some sort of unprecedented uh, international cooperation and coordination to kind of shut down Bitcoin. And so if you think about, okay, how are we going to get Europe, the US and China uh, to kind of all simultaneously agree? I think there's like very little probability right now. And it's also just too small for them to care at this stage, right? Like we're talking a couple of hundred billion dollars at the moment. In, In the grand scheme of things, that's not probably what what these governments are too concerned about and so yeah bitcoin will keep kind of infiltrating um society and and solutions and chances are that uh, at some point it's almost going to be impossible for them to shut it down because it would hurt their own kind of constituents too much right um so if everybody uh, keeps getting more and more exposed to let's let's just focus on bitcoin for one it's going to be very hard for a politician to say, okay, I'm going to ban it now because it's going to hurt uh, the pension systems, it's going to hurt the savings of, of the people. So they're going to lose votes uh, in the next cycle. So uh, I think from an incentive perspective, it's very interesting on, let's say, an individual country level. And then if you look at it from an international perspective, I think there's a lot of uh, interest that there to look at alternatives let's say to to the us dollar right as a a reserve currency and so maybe it's going to be the chinese yuan or maybe it's going to lead to for some for some countries to to look at something that could be uh, independent right now obviously we're still very far away from from these kind of scenarios but i think that's kind of where we're headed to so i don't think that they won't try to, to shut it down, but I think it's going to be very hard. 
All right. So when you look at the crypto market cap and the Google search trends, is there a correlation? It seems to me that the crypto has lost some steam over the years. But uh, when I talk to some uh, crypto evangelists, they also disagree with me and they say that there are new use cases being discovered and the potential is great. And it is something that you could compare, for example, in financial services to derivatives. You know, when the first derivatives uh, kind of um, were used more and more, some countries w- or regulators were opposing it because they didn't have capacity to regulate it. They didn't understand it. And uh, look, now where we are, right, it is uh, it is uh, widely used. It's completely standard. There's nothing uh, crazy about it. So what about uh, what about the crypto? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think if you look at like, uh, to answer your first question, uh, yes, there is obviously a correlation there. But uh, I still believe that it's a lagging indicator. So as kind of the the space evolves and there is some price action, then people start uh, looking it up more. And that's kind of what's going to be reflected in, in, in the trends. And yes, uh, I think it's very fair to say that over the last uh, two or three years, uh, the public attention has been driven away from, from crypto. Uh, but I think that's like we have seen this this movie before, right? Uh, in 2013, after the crash, it was all about say private blockchains and crypto or Bitcoin was was dead until essentially January 17, when when uh, the e- ETF kind of narrative came back up and and kind of started getting some some traction again. But yeah, if going back to I. I don't think it's fair to say that uh, the industry has lost steam. Uh, I would say to the contrary, right? Like Grayscale has almost $10 billion on the management. Uh, MicroStrategy invested 400, over $400 million into Bitcoin. And the last month, PayPal is going to provide access to crypto assets to its 350 million users next year. Uh, Citibank is giving our predictions that are even more bullish than uh, the ones in the crypto industry itself. And to to kind of new developments, that's true as well, right? I think like this summer we saw like a very quote unquote small hype around uh, what's called DeFi or decentralized finance, which is really the concept of uh, taking financial services and automating them through like smart contracts that ranges from lending and borrowing to uh, derivatives to trading platforms to all sort of financial instruments that are replacing intermediaries with uh, code or, or smart contracts, which is something that, that we're very excited about to see kind of how that space is going to evolve as well. So yes, I mean, to kind of long story short, from yes, from the outside, it looks like uh, everybody has kind of gone away and, and been asleep. But I think from the inside, yeah, the, the crypto industry is probably in, in a better position than it ever has been before. All right. Well, let's see what happens, uh, Fabio. Good to hear that you are, are a believer, of course. So to wrap up, I have uh, two questions left, uh, which is, first of all, what is your favorite business book that you've read recently or this year? And uh, let's not talk about the you know, the blockchain revolution, right? That's obvious. Yeah. So I think like, I mean, there's, I would say maybe two of them. So one, it's uh, more a biography, but it's uh, called the, the Man Who Solved the Market, which is the story around the, the foundation of Renaissance Technologies, which is one of the most successful hedge funds, actually the most successful hedge fund in the world. So that was very fascinating. And then on the purely business side, uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Never Split the Difference, uh, which right. talks about... Uh, 
negotiating any sorts of deal. And it's written by uh, an author who used to be an FBI negotiator in hostage situations. And so it's very fascinating how they kind of translate some of these techniques to uh, your average uh, uh, business book. And then that's really something that, yeah, I, I like to go back to it and kind of read up on, on, on some points there. So that's one of my favorite books. All right, brilliant. So what is the best way to reach out and find out more about Base58 and yourself? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, base58.ch is, is our homepage. Uh, my email address is just my first name, Fabio at base58.ch. Uh, I'm on Twitter or LinkedIn. Very easy to find. So yeah, please reach out and happy, happy to chat. Great. Well, thank you, Fabio, and good luck to Base58. Thanks a lot, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.